0: God, our Heavenly Father, forgiveness is everything to us. It's everything to us because we're sinners. It's everything to us because you are holy. You are a holy judge. You're a holy judge who is wrathful towards sin every day. It's everything to us because we sin against others and are sinned against by others. So this is much more than a theoretical section we study today. It is our life. Open our eyes and ears. Teach us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, this picture is all too familiar. Some atrocious, horrible crime is perpetrated on someone. Someone is murdered, a son, a husband, a wife. And then immediately the family appears on the camera, and they immediately announce that they've forgiven the murderer. But then the next thing that happens is the murderer goes on to do everything he can to pay no price for what he's done. But this family is praised as having done the Christian thing. Instant, unconditional forgiveness. Is that what the Bible teaches? Or here's another scene that's familiar, familiar to pastors. Certainly, um, many pastors, here is a spouse who's been wronged by husband or wife, and the spouse says quite seriously, I don't know if I can forgive that. And the spouse is a Christian, And feels fine in saying that. Is that the biblical way to handle that? Well, what is the biblical teaching on forgiveness? Must we forgive unconditionally and instantly in every case where there's been sin? Or is forgiveness optional depending on how much the sin hurts us and how big it is? Or is the truth somewhere else? Spoiler alert. The truth is somewhere else. So, let's look at what Jesus says about this here, and this is a section that divides into three parts, as we've seen very often in Matthew, and you will see more threes than you can shake a stick at as we go through this section. So, the first part of Matthew uh, chapter 18, verses 21 through 35, is Christ's principle of forgiveness, Christ's principle of forgiveness, which we see in verses 21 and 22, Very simply, it's just a question and an answer. Christ's principle of forgiveness, then capital letter A, we begin with a truly human question. Truly human question. Verse 21, reading my translation of the Greek text. Then Peter came up and said to him, Lord, how many times will my brother sin against me and I will forgive him? Up to seven times? Now, a couple of things to note about the passage. The context, I remind you, this, it, it, this idea of forgiveness has just dropped, not just dropped down out of heaven. Remember, Matthew 18 is all instruction for the assembly of kingdom citizens, which would be the church, a future body that would exist after Pentecost. And Jesus has first taught uh, humility and watching out for sin. But the most recent section, verses 15 through 20, were what to do when a brother sins. A sheep strays, how does God use us to go after that straying sheep? So, assuming then, chapter, verse 15 said, when a brother sins, okay, now Peter asked the question, well, when my brother sins against me, how many times am I obliged to forgive him? So, in each stage of this process, verses 15 through 20, we tried to reach out to this person and bring that person to repentance, but how obligatory is forgiveness? And how many times could this process be repeated? And Peter makes it more existential. The Verse 15 says simply, if a brother sins, Peter says, but if he sins against me, how many times? Now, the topic of this section is clearly forgiveness. The word forgive, the verb for forgive, affiemi, occurs four times in this passage, right at the beginning, in the middle, and at the very end. Verse 21, it occurs. It occurs again in verses 27 and 32. And then in the last verse, verse 35. So it is about forgiveness. Now, the later rabbinic writing seems to reflect this thinking. This seems to have been the thinking of the rabbis in Jesus' day. The thinking is that there was a limit to forgiveness. Now, they took this from the book of Amos. And in the book of Amos, the prophet Amos, eight times you see this expression. Eight times you see these words, For three transgressions of, and then a place name, and for four, I will not turn back its judgment. So verse 3, for three, three transgressions of Damascus, and then he goes on to say Gaza, Tyre, Israel, Jerusalem. For three transgressions of Damascus, and for four, I will not turn back its punishment. So the rabbis took that to mean that they sinned once and forgiven, sin another time and we're forgiven sin a third time and we're forgiven but when they sin the fourth time then judgment fell so you can see that they concluded from that that we are obliged to forgive three times and then after that the hammer <laughs> but we're obliged to forgive three times that was rabbinical teaching after the time of Jesus close to that time so probably reflecting this because Peter asks a similar question now Peter's question assuming that background a three a three sin limit What does Peter do? Well, he takes the three sins and he doubles it, very generous, and then like a cherry on a Sunday, he adds a seventh time. So you see, against that teaching, Peter would feel like he was being very magnanimous, very expansive. Seven times, he says. He doubles the number and adds one. But what I want to point out is that thinking is truly human. From his perspective, he is increasing what the popular teaching was, but What's the assumption? There is a limit. That's human thinking. There is a limit. Surely, I can't be expected to keep on forgiving. So he just wants to know what's the limit. I'm not asking if there's a limit, he wants to know what the limit is. That's truly human. That question is truly human. But, letter B, we see a truly divine answer in verse 22. Jesus says to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but instead up to seventy-seven times. Now, you look in English translations, you'll see seventy-seven, and you'll see seventy times seven. It's pretty clear that the Greek text says seventy times seven, meaning seventy-seven not 70 times 7. So, either way, the exact number is not the point, as I'll show you in just a minute. But Jesus says, I do not say to you up to 7 times. Now, notice that He doesn't simply say, no, no, not up to 7 times. He doesn't just say, no, that's the wrong answer. Here's the right answer. He says, I do not say to you. So, this is kind of one of those, like we saw in the Sermon on the Mount, you've heard it said, but I say to you. Jesus is setting apart what He says, or he's what He says against what the thinking was of the religious in that day. That's not the way I see it, Jesus is saying. Here's the way I see it. I don't say three times. I don't say seven times. What do I say? Seventy times seven. Now that is just meant to be a limitless number. That's just meant to mean, no, you forgive and you forgive, and you forgive and you forgive. That's the idea of that. So, uh, Jesus' thinking is not human thinking, it's not rabbinic thinking, it's the thinking of the kingdom of God. The values and the motivating principles of the kingdom of God are not the same as the kingdom of man. Uh, They start this section obsessing over who's the greatest in the kingdom of God, and Jesus immediately takes the air out of that, and they they end it saying, well, how many times are we forced to forgive other people, and Jesus takes the air out of that as well. You can't put a limit on it, Jesus says. You just forgive and forgive and forgive. In both cases, he, ex- he exposes kingdom of man thinking and replaces it with kingdom of God thinking. And then he drives it home with a parable. Parable. So we've had the quick the, the question and the answer. And now the big part of this section is this parable. And the parable divides into three parts. And as you will see, the three parts divide into many three parts. I'll just show you that as we go along. You'll have trouble keeping up. There's so many threes in this section. But he has a parable about, a, about forgiveness. And I just want to say at the start, and I'll probably repeat it at the end, remember how to interpret parables. Parables are not allegories. In an allegory, Just about every major feature in the story means something. So what's a well-known allegory? Pilgrim's progress. Pilgrim's progress, every character and every event represents something. It's an allegory for something else. This is not an allegory. So you can't press every, if you were to press every detail of this into theology, you'd end up with very strange theology. It's really only meant to make one big point, and we'll see that as we go through. So just remember that. We have to keep that in mind. The expression you hear is, don't make parables walk on all legs. Uh, They aren't meant to. Usually they're meant to make one, maybe two points. So, letter A, the first of three scenes, we encounter the defaulting slave and the merciful king. Now, kids will hear that word defaulting and say, huh? But adults who've had to pay bills and have creditors know exactly what defaulting means. It means when you take a, take a loan and you don't pay it back. That's what it is to default. So, defaulting slave and merciful king, verses 23 through 27. And first, we see the first of three movements in that first of three sections. The first of three movements is the king settles accounts. We read, on account of this, the kingdom of the heavens is likened to a man, a king, who wished to settle accounts with his slaves. So he owns them all right, outright. He owns them entirely, he owns their production. He's going to settle accounts with them. Now, a slave could be in many positions in a Roman or a Greek household, uh, or a Jewish household. For that matter, it might be very menial labor or it might be a very exalted position. Officials were often slaves. Doctors were usually slaves. So don't think just somebody who worked in the yard um, pulling weeds. It it might be any of many things. And as as we see, this one slave obviously handled a great deal of money. So he goes to settle accounts with his slaves. Must have been a very... uh, Very rich king, Jesus imagines here, because his first slave that we mention, wow, let's just see. And when he began to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed 10,000 talents. But as he did not have enough to repay, the Lord gave orders for him to be sold off, and his wife, and his children, and all things, as many as he has, and for himself, the king, to be repaid. So first, then, let's note the enormity of the debt. What does he owe? 10,000 talents. Now, here when we read talent, of course, talent does not mean the ability to tap dance or uh, be a really good cook or play the oboe. That's not that kind of a talent, Talent was a a unit of money. Now, here's the very important thing to notice. It was, in fact, the highest unit of money. There was no higher unit of money in the Roman Empire than the talent. A talent was originally a weight of metal, silver or gold. Don't, Don't think zinc or something. Silver or gold. A talent was originally about 66 pounds of silver or 66 pounds of gold. What was the value? Now, anytime you read somebody and they try to put a dollar amount, that really is not helpful. It's better to think in terms of buying power or in this way, and this is very helpful. A town of silver was valued at 6,000 denarii. And what's the value of a denarius? It's a day's wage. So you see how that's, that's flexible. If it's a 10-hour day and you get 10, paid $10 an hour, that's $100. It depends on how much you're paid. But it is a day's wage. So a talent of silver is 6,000 days worth of money, of pay. So 60 talents is how many denarii? Let's see, multiply by and carry the zero... 60 million denarii. 60 million denarii. Now, how long would you have to work buying nothing, (laughs) handing every penny over, how long would you have to work to pay that off? Well, math is not, as I've confessed often, and frankly, math is not my thing. So, consulting uh, commentators and doing the best I could with a calculator, to pay this off, you'd have to work for A hundred sixty-four thousand years, without a day off, and giving every penny to the king. So, what do you think of this debt? Uh, In addition, talent, as I told you, is the highest unit of money. Ten thousand is the biggest number in Greek. So Jesus picked the biggest word for money and the biggest number in Greek, and he put them together and multiplied it. (laughs) So to give you an idea of how much this was, in the year 4 BC, the total tax of all Galilee and Perea was just 200 talents, and he owed 10,000 talents. So this is literally an impossibly vast debt. We wouldn't use the word billion. We'd use the word zillion, or make up a word like quintazillion, <laughs> quintabillion. It was an—it's an astronomical term. Pretty literally, probably if it were dollar bills and you stacked it up, you'd be in the stars. So, this is an impossible amount. Now, I'd like you to get into this because Jesus doesn't tell us these parables for us to go, hmm, that's interesting. but For us to feel them. So, imagine that you're a slave. You don't have rights. You're owned by this person and you owe this person this amount. Tens of thousands of years worth of labor. And he says, oh, please pay me Today what would you feel like? Think about that. Think about you don't have the, you can't declare bankrupt, bankruptcy. You, you, you can't default. You're being called to pay by a person with power and with the law behind him, And you need to pay. And what are you going to do? I mean, do you have the imagination to feel the kind of desperation that that would create? Just the, where do I go? What do I do? I, I, I've been really kind of not thinking about this, but This day that I was always hoping would be off a day, that's today. Today is the day I'm being called to to pay up, to settle up this amount. Feel that. That's his position. And so that brings us to the second of the three scenes. The slave seeks time, incredibly. Verse 26, he seeks time. Therefore the slave, and notice there are three parts in this verse. He fell down and he began bowing to him saying, be long suffering with me and all things will I repay you. So here's his three moves. He falls down. He's just struck to the ground. He won't even stand as if he were a peer with this Lord. He grovels. He lowers himself and he begins bowing to him, paying paying homage to him, saying, you've got the power over me. You've got the sovereignty over me. You've got me. You own me. I'm nailed. He owns his debt. It's his debt. And the king has the right to ask for it. And so he doesn't have the nerve to say, just let this thing go. Just wink at this. He says, I know I owe it to you. I know I'm obliged to pay it to you. Just makrothumeson. Be long suffering. Have a long fuse with me. And I'm not asking you to let me off. I. I it's mine. I owe it. I'll pay it up. So on the one hand his plan is impossible. (laughs) He can't ever pay it back. But on the other hand, he does not deny the debt. He does own the debt. It'd be a very different parable if his reaction were, oh, that's not my debt. That's another guy who looks like me. Or if his reaction were, well, you can't really blame me because my mother dropped me on my head when I was a baby so you really can't expect me. Or if his reaction were, of course, you're the oppressor class and I'm the oppressed class and of course you pull this sort of thing on. No, he didn't try any of those things. He said, yeah, I owe it to you. And then he came up with a plan that (laughs) was impossible. So now we come to the third of three movements of this first part. The king shows mercy in verse 27. And this is told in three moves once again. But moved with compassion, that's first. The Lord of that slave released him, that's second, and forgave him the loan, that's third. Now, it doesn't say he's moved with long suffering. He doesn't accept his plan. He doesn't say, okay, that's fine, how about if I give you a week? Is that enough time? A week, or a year, or 10 years, or a century. He doesn't respond in those terms. He just moved with compassion. Well, that's telling because this is the emotion we read most often about Jesus. When Jesus sees the miserable, he's moved with compassion. Sponkinizomai, I've talked with you about that. It means to have your very innards stirred with feelings of pity and mercy. And so this king, perfectly within his rights said to demand the money, but his response is to be moved with compassion, mercy, feelings uh, for this man. Absolutely unbelievable that he would respond in this way, but he does. Secondly, he releases the slave. Now, he doesn't release him from prison. He wasn't in prison, but he was given over to be sold uh, that was what the king was going to do. He was going to give orders for him to be sold. Now, that, that would never pay him off, but, but at least he'd get something back from selling the man and everything he had. But now he releases him from that. So if, if people had grabbed him to, to, to carry him away to sell him, they let go of him. He released him. And then finally, third, he forgives the debt. Now what that means is he lets it go. He cancels it. He doesn't owe him any more. He's not saying, sure, take your time and repay me. He's saying, it's canceled. Cancelled. Cancelled. Millions of days of labor canceled. Amazing. What a display. What a, what a king. What a heart. I mean, that, just feel that now. And, and what must you have felt if you were that slave? I tried to, to get us to enter into his feeling of having the, having the ticket called, having the debt called. Now enter into his feeling that he, he, he was going to try to pay it off, and now suddenly he finds out he's free. That burden he's been walking around with, it's, it's off him. It's been removed from him by a word from his king's mouth. What must that feel like? Well... It brings us to the second scene and what a shocker the second scene is. The first scene was a shocker because of the amount of the debt and because of the amazingness of the king's compassion, right? Well, the second part is no less shocking, but it's not a happy shock. Letter B, we see the demanding slave and fellow slave. And once again, we have three movements in this section. The first movement, the forgiven slave bullies his indebted fellow slave in verse 28. But that slave, first, came out and found one of his fellow slaves who owed him 100 denarii. And he, second, seized him and began choking him. Third, saying, repay whatever you owe. So once again, three moves, he finds him, he grabs and chokes him. And he demands that he pay back his 100 denarii debt. Now, let's talk about that debt. 100 denarii, how much is that? It's 100 days wages. So, like, think about a third of a year's salary. Now, it's not a small debt. In comparison, yes, I'll come back to that in a second. But 100 denarii is not nothing. That's a third of a year's salary, we'll say, okay? So, it's significant. And and we need to understand that because the Lord's point in this parable is not you don't really have any significant wrongs. Nobody's ever wronged you significantly. Nobody's ever sinned against you significantly. That's not his point. And it's important to understand that because I can see somebody who indeed has been wronged very significantly. Has, has And this sad, dark world, I mean, there are people, and there's probably people in here who've had horrible things done to you, physically horrible things, socially horrible things, psychologically horrible things to you. And the the Lord's point is not, well, you know, these things that you've got, they're not really consequential. They're not really big. So it should be an easy thing to forgive someone else. That is not His point. Understand that. The sins against us might be very real, very dark, very horrible sins. As a 100 denarii is a significant debt. His point is, what people have done to you and me compared to what we've done to God, well, that's a vast, vast difference. That's his point. The debt of anyone to me is nothing compared to my debt towards God. That's the Lord's point. That's his argument. And so, uh, otherwise, if we understood it, otherwise we would not understand it at all so his reaction is then forgiven this astronomical debt is to go out and find somebody who owes him and, and grab him and shake him and say pay and you know there's there's just a to me there's a, 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 a I've rendered it very literally so you can see this he says, he says repay whatever you owe or literally if you owe something pay it and I hear in that a bit of a lecture I hear him saying you know when you owe something you really ought to pay your debt And nobody's laughing. Think who's saying this. Think who's who's giving lectures on financial responsibility. Who is this who's going out telling him that he really ought to pay his debts? He really shouldn't pile up a big debt like a hundred denarii. Wasn't this the fellow who just owed 10,000 talents to his Lord and had it forgiven? And now he's lecturing someone else about financial responsibility. Not just lecturing him, but when he doesn't have the money on him, he won't even give him time to pay. He throws him right into prison. Now, what kind of a spirit is that? Think of, the, think of the blindness of that. You know, did this man have a vampire's house with, with no mirrors in it that he couldn't see himself? that he would go out and do this? That the pride, the blindness, the hard-heartedness that he should go out. He should have thought, you know, I've been forgiven so much, I should forgive. He does. That's obvious he should have thought it, but it wasn't obvious to him. Clearly his thought process, this imaginary man that Jesus calls us to envision, his thought process was, whew, I got that debt off of me. Now let's see. What am I going to do with my life now? I think my king was settling debts that looks like a great idea i'll go settle debts and he goes and he does this so this grace that was shown him didn't make him humble and compassionate somehow this grace that was shown him got twisted around in his heart and it made him proud and self-righteous you think that's very very ugly jesus means us to think it's very very ugly But he's going to hold up a mirror just to warn you for you and me to look into in a minute. He always does. He never tells us these stories so we can look at other people and say, wow. They're really bad. (laughs) If we ever think we've read a parable, and that was the point, we misunderstood the parable. (laughs) This is never how Jesus deals with us. So we come to the second of three movements in verse 29. His fellow slave responds. Therefore, his fellow slave, three parts once again. Fell down. Second, began urging him. Third, saying, be long-suffering with me, and I will repay you. Does that sound at all familiar? It's exactly what the first slave did. Basically, slight difference, but it's the same thing. He falls down too. He begins begging as well, and he says the same thing, almost word for word. Be long-suffering with me, and I'll repay you. He too does not deny it's his debt. He too says he'll pay it off. He too asks for patience. But here comes the difference. The slave will do no such thing. He won't hear it at all. He doesn't, this is the blindness of us here. He doesn't even hear his own words. They don't even strike a familiar note to him. He's just outraged that somebody would do this to him. Have the effrontery to owe him so much money and not be able to pay it off. So that's the second of three movements brings us to the third. The unforgiving slave responds in verse 30. And again, three parts. But first of all, he was not wishing to do so. Second, but instead went off. And third, cast him into prison until he should repay what was owed. So three moves. And notice a little connection here in this story. He was not wishing to do so. Had we heard the word wishing recently? Well, yes, in fact, we did. We read at the start of this parable... That the king wished to settle accounts. We read that verse 23, like unto a man, a king, who wished to settle accounts. So this king wished to settle accounts, and yet he forgave this slave. And when this slave was begged for long suffering by his fellow slave, he did not wish to show him long suffering. A very ironic contrast Jesus paints here for us. So, having seen these three movements, now comes a movement that serves as a hinge. It hinges between the second part and the climactic third part. Verse 31 the fellow slaves, they also have three moves, once again. Therefore, when his fellow slaves, first of all, saw the things that had happened, they, second, were terribly saddened. And they, third, came and clearly reported to their own Lord all things that had happened. So they witnessed this. The guy did this in front of everybody, and he felt no compunctions and no shame about it. They all saw it happen. And they're terribly sad. I mean, it's, it's a parable. It's made up, but you kind of feel like they must have liked the second guy more than they liked the first guy. They weren't outraged at the second guy's inability to pay. They were outraged, outraged at the first guy's heartlessness. And so they go and they thoroughly inform the king. It's a verb that stresses that they made it very clear to him what had happened. He was fully informed about it. So that hinge takes us to the third of the three scenes. And here we see the disgraceful slave and the wrathful king. Verses 32, it should be 32 to 34. Not to 24, 32 to 34. Obviously, not going backwards, just a typo. So we've seen the defaulting slave and the merciful king. We've seen the demanding slave and his fellow slave. Now we see the disgraceful slave and the wrathful king. And it is in three parts once again. So here is the first move. Verse 32. Verse 32. The king summons the slave. Then his Lord called him to himself and says to him, Wicked slave, all that debt I forgave you since you urged me. Well, he tells him what he is, and then he proves his point. He calls him a wicked slave. He doesn't sympathize at all. He sees in his act just meanness, heartlessness, unfairness, and cruelty. Calls him a wicked slave and says, All that debt I forgave you since you urged me. Uh, He's been forgiven a vast debt by sheer grace and mercy, but he would not show this same thing to his fellow slave. In fact, that takes us to the second movement. The king scolds his slave in verse 33, not 34, but verse 33. Was it not necessary for you to show mercy to your fellow slave, even as I showed you mercy? Now, there is a moral obligation here. It was necessary. That's a more literal translation. It's been used a few times in Matthew's gospel about something that is divinely necessary. And so he's not just saying, well, shouldn't you? Wouldn't have been a good idea. But he's saying it It was Um, compulsory for you. It was a thing you needed to do. Now, you'll hear some Christian uh, teaching today from otherwise good guys who say that well, they call it the debtor's ethic, the, the idea that, well, God has shown me grace, and so I should show gratitude with my life. And they'll say, well, that's not good. We should just uh, glorify God and enjoy Him and not worry about debt or so forth. Well, and yet here it is right here. He was obliged. The kindness shown Him obliged Him to show kindness to others. And Jesus' uh, conclusion at the end of this section will underline that, that, yeah, there is an obligation. I mean, no, we never pay it back. That it's no part of that. This is not a matter of paying God back for his kindness, but it is the idea that we should love others because God loved us, that we should be merciful to others because God showed us mercy. We should be gracious towards others because God showed us grace. And so back to the parable, this slave should have been gracious, should have been merciful to his fellow slave because he was shown so much mercy. Well, was he shown mercy? Yes, he certainly was. And and here, let me just make this point and drive it home a bit. He was shown amazing mercy. I mean, think again. He had an astronomical debt he could never pay. And this is meant to paint our stand before God. And I, I want to make that very clear. And I hope that you see that. Because to the person to whom sin is not a big problem. He doesn't really think about it much, and maybe now and again he'll pray and ask God to help him, but he doesn't even think about the fact that he's ever sinned against God. He doesn't see any reason why he shouldn't just go right into God's presence, ask Him for something, and then walk right out of God's presence. Uh, Then that's a person who's very far from God. That's a person who has no relationship with God, whatever, and has no right to ask God for anything on that stand. No, we all need to understand that all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. We need to understand that the wages of sin is death. We need to understand that we're dead in trespasses and sins, and even our righteous deeds are as filthy rags. We need to look at this guy and see ourselves. That's what we're meant to do, every one of us. Jesus is not going to make the point at the end that you should be forgiving if you've sinned much against God. It's not, Jesus does not conceive that there's anybody in the kingdom of God who has not sinned like this guy against God. Sinned in a massive... But here's the gospel... The gospel is God will forgive all our sins simply when we believe in Jesus Christ. That's the gospel. That's the good news. But we never will understand the good news unless we understand the bad news. And that, that's the trouble with this generation. When we talk about forgiveness, they say, yeah, well, really, what I need to hear about is how to get more money, or more power, or more sex, uh, greater visibility, more followers more subscribers, more likes. This is what I really need. I don't need forgiveness because they don't feel their sin because they don't accept the concept of a a God who is Lord, who's holy, who has laws that we've violated. But that's the reality of this world. This world was created. It has a Lord and God. He has laws. And when we violate his laws, either by not doing what he commands or doing what he forbids, we're sinners. And we've done that all our lives. And so we have a debt like this guy. And the gospel is that when a person simply turns and looks to Christ in repentant faith, he's forgiven all his sins. Now, there's two things that keep a person from Christ. They're like poles of the, same, of the same continuum. One person is kept from Christ because he doesn't think his sins are a real problem. And that is a deadly error. That's a deadly error. But the other person is kept from Christ because he thinks his sins are too great and let me talk to that person right now look at this guy was his debt too great answer me was his debt too great I can't hear you yes Yes. he never could have paid it it was absolutely inconceivably vast never could have paid it but was it forgiven with a word yes now what this parable doesn't tell is how God can do that and still be just Because as I said, no parable tells everything. God can do that for sinners because He sent His Son to die for sinners. He came into the world to save sinners. And so Jesus came and made full atonement for the sinners He came to save. And so when anyone turns to Christ in repentant faith and believes in Him, all of his sins are forgiven. Forgiving sins is not a problem for God. He will do that for anyone who believes in Christ. So if that has kept you from Christ... Stay away no longer. Come now and welcome to Jesus. Look to him and your sins will be forgiven as surely as this man. So the king reminds him here, didn't I forgive you all that debt? This is what he says. He had a moral obligation. Was it not necessary for you to show mercy to your fellow slave even as I showed you mercy? His mercy should have stirred the heart of that slave to mercy. But now we come to the third move. The king scourges the slave, verse 34. And moved with wrath, his Lord delivered him over to the tormentors until he should repay all that was owed. Before he was moved with pity, with mercy, with compassion. Now he's moved with wrath sin sin brings god's wrath as judge but forgiven sinners who will not forgive also anger god our father and bring the discipline of god and so you see now he's not sold he's not sold off he's tormented he's sent off to the tormentors to be tormented well now that is one dramatic story is it not i mean how do you How do you walk away from that? That that leaves a mark, wouldn't you say? So Jesus makes the point of it in one verse. So this whole section is in three parts. Peter's question and answer. And then the big part is that three-part parable with all of the threes inside of it. And then here comes Christ's point in verse 35. Jesus says, Christ's point is, thus also will my heavenly Father do to you all unless each of you forgive his brother from your hearts. Now, if it looks a little awkward, the Greek shifts back and forth between the plural and the singular. But what Christ is saying is each and every one of us in God's kingdom is obliged to forgive each and every one of our brothers from our hearts. So he gave his principle in verses 21 and 22, illustrated it with a parable in verses 23 to 34, And now he makes a point about it. Now, what does this mean? I mean, this is a, this, I will say, this is a very difficult, this is a difficult verse. It's a difficult section to interpret. It's challenging, very challenging. So let me do my best to open it up in the context of Scripture. And we'll just approach it from two angles. First, we'll approach it doctrinally. Doctrinally, in terms of what the the teaching of the Bible is that, that will explain this verse to us. Thus also will my heavenly Father do to you all, unless each of you forgive his brother from your hearts. Now, we need to read every verse like it's all by itself, but we also need to read every verse in the setting of all of Scripture. This is obvious. Some verses taken by themselves, if we isolated them, would say something that the rest of Scripture contradicts. Like you riffed out the verse, you will not surely die. So that teaches there'd be no consequence to eating the forbidden fruit. Is that true? No, put the verse back in the Bible and read the rest of it and you see Satan's lying. Do you follow me? Thank you. You know it's required. Somebody needs to say he's following me so I can move on. So let's do that first. And I want to tell you there are two, I'm sure there's more than two, but I'm going to say there are two impossibles in how to understand this verse. If we think this verse teaches one of these two things, we're, we're mistaken. It can't. It can't with the rest of Scripture being true and with the verse being true. So first, it is impossible to interpret this as a way that ends up meaning that you can have your sins forgiven and then have them unforgiven. Now, you read the parable all by itself, you might, oh, that's what he's teaching. No, that's not what he's teaching. And it, not only is it not what he's teaching, it can't be what he's teaching because the rest of Scripture makes very clear. In the Gospel of John, he says of his sheep, I give to them eternal life and they will never perish. So when he gives them eternal life, does he forgive their sins? The answer is yes. If their sins are then charged back to them, will they perish? Well, yes. Yes. So can what Christ said be true in that case? No. He says, I give them eternal life, and they will never perish, and I will never lose them. You read Romans 8, where all who God foreknows, He predestines, Christ dies for, He justifies, He glorifies. Not a one of them is lost. And, and there's just countless other Scriptures that are, cannot be understood any other way as saying that once God saves somebody, He stays saved. Or else the word saved doesn't mean what it should mean. <laughs> He's not really saved. He's given a reprieve, but he's not saved. So no, when when God forgives our sins as judge, they're forgiven forever. This can't teach otherwise. And another thing though, and and, and hear me here, it's impossible to take this to mean anything that makes us relax and say, okay, then it's no big deal. See, that's my my fear. Us who are in the what's called once saved, always saved camp, and people who don't share our view they look at us and they say we see now that possession makes you not care about sin because you're just always saved so it doesn't matter if you sin and then we come back and say no 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 no." but the truth is in some people yes some people take it that way now what I want to say to you very forcefully is clearly Jesus does not mean us to read this verse and say whew I thought this is something I had to take seriously. <laughs> Boy, am I glad. I don't have to because I can't get lost again. So clearly this doesn't mean anything to me. Oh, no. Then if we think that that's the meaning, then we have misunderstood Jesus very badly. He, he means us to sit up and take very clear notice of this. So that's a doctrinal framework. So now... We need to understand that we stand before God in two relationships, and that will help us understand this verse, I believe. First of all, we stand, we all stand, we begin standing before God in the relationship of our judge. As I've said, He's our creator and He's our judge. He creates us as moral beings. And so that means that we are morally accountable to Him. We're not neutral. We are either sinners or we're righteous. We're, we're either right in His eyes or we're guilty in His eyes. And the fact is, we're all guilty in His eyes. Scripture's perfectly clear about that. We're all dead in trespasses and sins, Ephesians 2. The wages of sin is death, Romans 3.23. All have sinned, Romans 6.23. And read Romans 3.10 and following. All are guilty. No one seeks after God. That's our race. And so we're guilty. We're condemned before God, the judge, as sinners and as judge. However, when he sets to save us of that massive fallen guilty humanity, he elects a subset to be in Christ. Ephesians 1.3, he gives them to Christ to save. John 17, he sends Christ into the world to save those sinners. 1 Timothy 1.15, he does this all as judge and savior. And then when he draws us to believe in Jesus in repentant faith, we're right with God. Romans 5.1, we have peace with God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Romans 8.1, there's no condemnation for us who are in Christ Jesus. This is God acting as our judge and our Savior. And so he, he declares us righteous with the righteousness of Christ. When a person believes in Jesus, God credits the very righteousness of Christ to that sinner and sees him with Christ's righteousness. And so this is a very simple calculation. And I'm going to ask a question that I want answered. Were we saved because of works we did? No, I'm glad you didn't hesitate. But if we weren't saved by works that we did, can we be lost by works we didn't do? And the answer also is no, we were ne- we were never saved by anything we done. We were, we were never saved by anything we have done, and we will never be lost because of anything we haven't done. That's God before us as our judge and our Savior, but also God is our Father. Now that's another relationship we have with God, and as our Father, He disciplines His children. Now I want you to go to Hebrews twelve with me. Actually, pick up your Bible and look there with me. And this will set this, I think, all in perfect context for us. So towards the end of your Bibles, turn to Hebrews chapter 12. And we will read thoughtfully together. Hebrews 12, verses 5 through 11. So... Hebrews twelve five he says, And you've forgotten the exhortation which is addressed to you as sons. My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor faint when you are reproved by him. So his reproof can be strong enough that I might be tempted to faint, to lose heart. This doesn't sound very… doesn't sound like a, you know, you could have done better. It doesn't sound like that kind of discipline, does it? That doesn't make me want to faint. Uh, go on. For those whom the Lord loves, He disciplines. Discipline is not a, a sign of God's hatred, but His love. And He flogs every son whom He receives. What's another verb that means flog? Starts with a scourge, start, and I'm thinking of the one that starts with W. Whip. Whip. He whips every son whom he receives. He scourges, he flogs every son whom he receives. Now, that's a fairly severe discipline, and yet that is for those who… Why does he do that? He does it out of love. We've already read that. He says it is for discipline that you endure. God deals with you as with sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? But if you're without discipline, of which all have become partakers, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Furthermore, we had earthly fathers to discipline us, and we respected them. Shall we not much rather be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as seemed best to them. But He disciplines us for our benefit, so that we may share His holiness. And all discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful, but sorrowful. But to those who've been trained by it, Afterwards, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. So we read here that God, as our Father, disciplines all His children, and we read that discipline can be quite severe. <clears throat> okay, with that doctrinal frame, now let's look at this section practically. First, the meaning of forgiveness. Let me say something biblical that is uh, popularly misunderstood, the meaning of forgiveness, repentance is always assumed for the granting of forgiveness. It is always assumed that the person we're called on to forgive has come up and repented and asked for forgiveness. The Bible does not teach that we are obliged to give unconditional, instant forgiveness. For one thing you'll see, often we're called to forgive as God forgives. Does God forgive unconditionally? Now, don't answer out loud because there's a lot of teaching that would instantly answer yes, and the answer is no. God does not forgive unconditionally. First of all, He had to pay for our sins. He did that by sending Christ to atone for our sins. And secondly, we must repent and believe in Christ to know that forgiveness. So it's not unconditional. And He doesn't call us to forgive unconditionally either. There needs to be repentance now. A real repentance and a real Uh, ask for forgiveness, is specific and unconditioned. In other words, it's not, well, I'm sorry if I did something that offended you, because it has to do with sin. And it is, I did this, and it was wrong. And then it is, will you please forgive me? That's what a real apology is. Uh, There's more to it, but it doesn't make excuses. It doesn't extemporize. It doesn't blame shift. It's specific, and there's a request for forgiveness. And so now it's to us whether to forgive or not. Now, look, if if you're saying, well, I'm not sure this is so different from what I've heard, I just ask you one question. What does the context teach us? Try to make sense of verses 15 through 20 on this notion of unconditional instant forgiveness. How could any of that happen? Are you following me? So verse 15 says, when your brother sins, do what? Just forgive him instantly and let it go? Well, if, if that were the teaching, that would be the end of the section. If your brother sins, then just forgive him and that's the end of it. But that's not what Jesus says, is it? What do I do? I go to him and I confront him for his sin. And if he listens to me, I've won my brother. But what if he doesn't listen? Well, then I forgive him unconditionally and drop it, right? What does Jesus say? get a witness or two and go back and try again. What if he doesn't listen to us? Well, then I forgive him unconditionally and drop it, right? No. Then I tell the church and the church confronts him. And what if he doesn't listen to the church? Well, then we all forgive it unconditionally and drop it, right? No. Then he's excommunicated. So it makes absolute nonsense of the of the context to think that Jesus is saying that when somebody wrongs... And it's not in the parable, is it? The, the first slave doesn't say, I don't owe you any money. I don't know what you're talking about. Go talk to somebody who really owes you money. I don't owe you money. No, he admits it. And the second slave, the same. So there's no idea of instant, unconditional freedom. I don't even know what that would mean, anyway. I don't even know what what, what, what it would mean to... So, I mean, I've had people joke with me over the years, the Truly Reformed. They say, well, I forgive you for being a dispensationalist. And I've said, please don't. I don't regret being a dispensationalist. I'm very happy being a dispensationalist. I'm I'm happy to explain to you why I'm a dispensationalist. It would insult me for you to forgive me for doing something that I, I don't think is wrong. Well... Somebody's not owned this as a sin. What does forgiveness even mean? How would that even work? I remember there was a false teacher years ago who suddenly was being embraced by some supposed Christian guys, and supposedly there'd been some forgiveness. I wrote an article about it. I mean, repentance, sorry. I wrote an article about it in Pyromaniacs, and I said, when did this happen? He taught these errors publicly to millions of people. Where's the repentance? Show me where I can read about that. Why did he repent? Why, why, how did he come to see that he was wrong for teaching this heresy that he taught? And what has he done to make it right? With all these people, he's led off to hell by his false teaching. He fell on deaf ears. I mean, it's, it's not a biblical teaching and it's, I, don't, I can't even make sense out of it to be perfectly honest. What does Jesus say in Luke 17 verses 3 and 4? Write that down. Luke 17 verses 3 and 4. Be on your guard If your brother sins, rebuke him. What's the next part? And if he repents, forgive him. And if he repents, forgive him. And if he sins against you seven times a day and returns to you seven times saying, I repent, forgive him. This is what the Bible teaches. And when we forgive, we commit ourselves graciously to pardon the person and to be reconciled To that person. There may be consequences. This is a very complex thing. The book I recommended to you goes into that. But we seek to be reconciled. We don't keep bringing it up. We don't keep hounding the person. We forgive it. We accept it. We forgive it. We let it go. So that's the meaning of forgiveness. Now let's talk about the necessity of forgiveness. It's the clear teaching of the Bible that forgiveness is always to be granted upon repentance. Always. That is the meaning of this parable. And that's what Jesus is teaching in context. You've confronted a brother in his sin, and when he repents, you forgive him. If he repents when one person talks to him, you forgive him. If you have to talk to him 70 times, 77 times, you forgive him. Or at the second stage or the third, wherever he repents, you forgive him, Jesus says, when he repents. Look at Ephesians chapter 4, verses 31 and 32. And this will also help us understand what to do in situations where a person doesn't repent. Because the Bible teaches us what to do there. Ephesians 4 31. Let all bitterness and anger and wrath and shouting and slander be put away from you, along with all malice. Instead, be kind to one another, tender hearted. Now, that's what to do all the time. And if somebody has wronged me, I do that. The opposite of forgiving is not seeking revenge. The Bible says, don't seek revenge. What does Jesus say to do for our enemies? Pray for them, love them, do them good. So it's not, it's not forgive or go on the warpath. Hatfields and McCoys, you know, those aren't the choices. We are told not to take, leave room to the wrath of God, not to take our own vengeance. And here, don't be bitter, don't yell, don't hold grudges, and pursue your own vengeance. Leave that to God. And then, when somebody repents, comes the next part: graciously forgiving each other. Beautiful word, karizomai. It's it's related to the Greek word karis, which means grace. So it stresses that our forgiveness is gracious. It's it's not $5 a pound. It's free on the asking. Graciously forgiving one another, just as God in Christ also has graciously forgiven us, conditionally, but graciously. Uh, I'll read you Colossians 3, 12 and 13. It says very similarly, but write it down. Colossians 3, 12 and 13. So as the elect of God, holy and beloved, put on a heart of compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, bearing with one another. And that's repentant or not. That's at all times. And then the next thing, graciously forgiving each other. Whoever has a complaint against anyone, just as the Lord graciously forgave you, so also should you. He's forgiven me my great crimes. I should forgive my brother and my sister his great crimes, as God graciously did to me. To fail to grant forgiveness is to offend our father, and he obviously hates that. He obviously hates to see his children show a money-grubbing, merciless heart towards one another going out as grand inquisitioners, demanding every pound of flesh for every wrong. He hates to see that. He didn't show us grace for us to go out and be judges and miserable to each other. And if we will not, then he will discipline us and it will hurt. As this man was delivered to the tormentors, it will hurt. How much you say. A lot I say. Like whipping I say. Wait, I didn't say that. Who said that? Solomon said that, and the he, author of Hebrews quoted him. Let me show you a little—a little X-ray. Turn to Psalm 32, see what this is like. Psalm 51, David talks about his sin against Bathsheba. Psalm 32, he seems to kind of reflect on it and give us a little more insight as to because there was a um, there was a, a time spread between David's sin and his repentance. There is time enough for him to marry her between the time of his committing the sin and repenting. And the text doesn't seem to show anything going on in David. And you wonder, David was a believer. Yes, I believe he was. Can believers commit horrible sins? My answer as a Bible believer it must be, apparently. So here we go. And look at... Peter, and there are a great many other examples. Yes, sadly, believers can commit horrible sins. So what was going on inside of David between committing this horrible sin and coming to the point of repentance? Psalm 32 shows us, starts off saying, how blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven. That's his his conclusion. You are a happy man and whose sin is covered. But then verse 3, look at this. When I kept silent about my sin, now this is the time when he'd sinned and he had not repented. What was life like for you, David? Well, I'll tell you, he says, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. Now, you got a sore pinky, what can you do? Lots of things. If all your bones are sore, what can you do? Not much except groan. And he groaned all day long. Why, David, why? Did you have some sort of vitamin deficiency? No. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My vitality was drained away as with the heat of summer, he dried all up. I acknowledge my sin to you and my iniquity I did not cover up. I said I will confess my transgressions to Yahweh and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's God's fatherly disposition. As David's father he disciplined David to the very last inch of his life. Brought great misery to him till David repented. And then he knew the restoration. And, and what, did, what else did he lose? Psalm 51 tells us he lost us his salvation. What does he say? Restore to me the the joy of my salvation. and he lost that during this time. That's the discipline of God. So do you see why I say, yes, I don't believe this teaches anyone can lose his salvation, but if our response is to say, Phew, I, guess I don't need to take it very seriously. No, <laughs> wrong conclusion. Unless you think groaning all day long is a happy place to be <laughs> and having no joy in your salvation. God takes very seriously that we show his mercy to others. So, there's the wrap-up. Relations in the kingdom of God are about grace and love. They're not about law and justice. Forgiven people must be forgiving people. People who have received God's mercy must be people who show God's mercy. We have got to be an assembly of forgivers. Amen? So, If you are a person who has not trusted Christ, you know a lot of things, you've heard a lot of things, but you have not yourself trusted in the Lord Jesus and rested your faith on Him, then the bad news is you have got a debt you can never pay. You've got a debt you can never pay. But the good news is Christ has paid that debt for anyone who will repent and believe in Him. Every last man, woman, or child who looks to him in faith will find all of his sins forgiven by God's mercy, by God's compassion, by God's grace. It sets us free to go and show that same grace and compassion to other people like our Father does. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this word of the Lord Jesus, and we pray that the Spirit of God will send it home to our hearts, that we will hear it, and that we will see how you would speak into our specific situation with it. Thank you, thank you for that grace. We, we, not a, one of us could even talk about a relationship with you. If you'd not provided such abundant forgiveness in Christ, we thank you, thank you. We've never yet worked off one of our sins Every last one of them has been paid for by Jesus Christ. We Thank you, thank you, thank you. Help us to learn to show the same sort of grace and compassion towards each other as you've shown towards us. And make this a church where that's the rule, not the exception, but the rule that we're an assembly of forgiving, forgiven people. In Jesus' name, amen.